This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Welcome to the interview. My guest today is Professor M.J. Urwajema. She has taught social work at York University and the University of Toronto and has 20 years of social work practice experience, which includes mental health counseling, community-based research, and documentary filmmaking, while working primarily with Black, racialized immigrant, and LGBTQ communities. Her interests also include histories of anti-racist activism in Canada. Our topics today include the roots of systemic racism, your role in the pursuit of social justice, and the NBA's path forward, and a lot more. Enjoy the conversation. Let's start off by talking about uh, the NBA strike that happened, or the brief NBA strike that uh, happened for the last couple of days. The playoffs uh, resumed today, today, Saturday. There are some observers who question the efficacy and ultimate direction of a strike and might say that nothing much got accomplished over the last couple of days. What is a logical response to that question? Oh, my goodness. Of course, it accomplished something. A hundred percent. It's well, we're talking about it right now. It's been on the news, you know, over the past few days. But beyond that, and also, obviously, not just the NBA, but all the other leagues had to follow suit. And you have Naomi Osaka following suit. And so major cultural players basically speaking to the political moment and interrupting, you know, a culture of ignoring racial violence. That's even if nobody did a thing, just that pause and the fact that these people said what they think is extremely important. But it also made me think of, uh, I don't remember the football team, but sometime last, maybe in the last couple of years, there was an incident in a American university where uh, I think it was like the president or the vice president of the university who hit with his car a staff or like a black staff person on campus and then wouldn't deal with it. And the football team decided the mainly black football team, and it was a black person that he hit. They decided we're not going to play if you don't um, remove this president basically. Right. And it took literally one game, one game for them to make that stance. The amount of money that was lost with that, the, the university immediately got rid of the president. So for me, it's literally the economy of sports that dictates the reality that anytime major athletes take this kind of stance, not only will it have a big effect on the political discourse in society, not only will fans, you know, who may or may not be politically interested, have to listen, but also the financial costs of canceling sports games for just one day, um, inevitably will have some kind of impact. What kind of strategies can we take to take that awareness that has been generated and turn it into action? The NBA resumes today. The danger is that, you know, people forget about this and resume normalcy again. And that, that, that's kind of one of the reasons why this, uh, this strike happened is that the even NBA players felt that normalcy had resumed and people were kind of ignoring the, what happened after the George Floyd shooting. Well, I think before talking about strategy or before thinking about actions that everyday people can take, one of the things to think about is to ask yourself why NBA players, why WNBA players, 
why NFL players, why all of these folks have actually been taking stances against racial injustice, not just this week, but for the past few years. And and there's a much longer history of that, of course, with, uh, you know, with runners doing that, with Muhammad Ali, et cetera. Um, And if you think about it, and I've asked you when I've done workshops on anti-black racism with social workers and stuff like that, you know, like, what does anti-black racism have to do with the Toronto Raptors? Why are they all wearing, you know, these Black Lives Matter shirts? Why are they, why are they refusing to answer questions in interviews? Like football players started doing that. The, the Seattle Seahawks started doing that a long time ago. And the reality is, is, I mean, it's not a distant experience for them, right? It's not a political issue that has nothing to do with them. It is something that's directly impacted their lives growing up and still impacts their lives now. So you've got what happened to Masai Ujiri, for example. You've got with the Bucks being the team to lead off the strike. You've got one of their players, what was his name? Uh, Sterling Brown being assaulted by the police, even with them knowing who he was. Um, and you've got um, George Floyd having an NBA player, Stephen Jack, a former NBA player, as a friend of his. So all of these players aren't just randomly like corporations jumping in and saying black lives matter. They're saying black lives matter because they grew up in communities that have been policed and have been. And so what is policing? Right. And I mean, I looked it up actually when I was thinking about this interview and, you know, if you look up policing and you look, you look up for synonyms for the words, there's words like enforce, oversee, regulate, monitor, observe, watch. So it's a group of people that are there to monitor, oversee, watch a community and this is something that happens primarily to black and indigenous communities, but also communities like Arab, Muslim, um, communities like LGBTQ communities, different communities that historically and at this point in time have been constructed as threats and as threats because there are people who have been used by the society to build the society, like people who've been exploited, so enslaved or had their land stolen, those kinds of things, right? So these NBA players, and I think somebody was saying this on Twitter and it really stuck with me, um, they're not the regular millionaire that hasn't that for whom this means nothing. They're not. They're literally one person away from somebody who's been shot by the police. They're one person away from somebody who's been harassed by the police, and it may very well have happened to them. So what I'm trying to get at here is before people launching into, you know, what can we do as regular people, I'd also say like, many of us regular people, myself included, and pretty much anybody who's non-white, or at least poor, or at least black, um, they have been on the receiving end of this. So the first thing, if you're in that segment of the community, which is a significant number of people, think about what you can do to organize your own community, right? Um, But if you are completely divorced from this issue, and are not in a community that's been policed, then, and you, you know, your entry point into this is the NBA and these players that you admire, then try to understand, well, why are these players protesting? Who are these players? Why does this matter to them? And listen to them and go for And even if you just took the point of getting educated based on your care for these particular players. So when I've done this workshop, I've asked people, what does anti-black racism have to do with the Raptors? And, you know, they can't, they don't know off the top of their head. And I asked them that question because I remember when the Raptors won the championship, um, what's his name? The mayor, John Tory was like, oh, you know, yay, you know, the Raptors, you guys are, are, we feel like your family now. And I remember a lot of people taking exception to that because 
you know, they, they thought to themselves, well, yeah, they won the championship in their family, but the way John Tory actually talks about black communities um, is not that friendly. Right. So he said things like well, sewer rats and things like that in reference to people who are, who've been involved in gun violence. He's talked about taking down, you know, community housing. And these are things that, you know, black people who play in the NBA would have lived in. Right. So what's my point? My point is, um, is for many of us, the starting point is that it's our families and community. So for those of us who are in that situation, it's just about thinking what, how is your community impacted by racist policing and what can you do at a community level to support people around you? And for people who have no such relationship, then Try to understand what does Black Lives Matter have to do with the Raptors? You know, why does Fred Van, Van Fleet cry? Why is Chris, what's his name, Chris Weber? Why was he crying? Um, what's going on with these people that we admire that they are in pain and suffering? And then educate yourself from that entry point. Look up Fred Van Fleet's story. Look up Danny Green's story. Look up Kawhi Leonard's story. Look up um, what's his name, the the Cameroonian. Um, yeah, look up Siakam. Like Siakam couldn't go see his father when his father died because immigration policies are completely racist. And if you're an African immigrant to the U.S., you can't leave the country, right? Um, what Danny Green, his father, was falsely imprisoned because he couldn't afford bail. Like these aren't some distance issue, like distant issues for them. These are things that they have lived through, right? So if uh, the average Raptors fan just looked up the backstories of the players that they admire they would gain so much education about why it's important to fight against racism that that, that to me would be enough of a starting point. And then you can go from there. And, and, and I suppose, I mean, the examples that you gave are people who now have are, are essentially privileged because they have, uh, they're, they're wealthy and they're well off. But if you actually kind of reverse extrapolate that to the common citizen who doesn't have that, all the inequities kind of, you know, magnify by several orders of magnitude. Absolutely. But even as millionaires, they can't stop. Like Sterling Brown was an NBA player. <laughs> You've got the body cam of these people like tasing him and stepping on his ankles, knowing fully well he's an NBA player for what parking, parking improperly in a lot at like after 1 a.m. Like, so even as millionaires, in many ways, because of racism, like black NBA players are also in a position where they don't actually have certain kinds of power if they're not doing collective action. As individuals, they cannot stop police forces from harassing even themselves, right? So, um, so, but I think they're doing what they can do to use what is the only way to stop something that's systemic. So systemic would be something that's happening across a society. It's not one cop. It's not one incident. It's the way policing is structured to control certain communities. Let me ask you this, this word that you use, systemic, because this gets thrown around a lot. As an academic who has researched this for over 20 years, what do you specifically mean when, when, when you say systemic? And could you give our audience some examples of how systemic racism's, uh, racism affects people? Well, I mean, so basically, it's the, it's the idea that a society is structured in a way that um, blocks certain groups of people and gives privileges to other groups of people and that the two are directly related. So in blocking one group, you're privileging another group. So if you look at Canada, the United States, first, the, the, the beginning of systemic racism is um, 
colonialism and enslavement, right? So European, English, and French, um, essentially conquerors came to this, came to the, came to North America and stole land from indigenous people whom they pushed onto reserves, right? So the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, its origins, it was Johnny MacDonald, first prime minister, came up with the RCMP, um, basically copying what British were doing against Irish in Europe to push indigenous people onto reserves and keep them there. Right. So that theft of land couldn't have happened without a police force. And then that theft of land though, what it did was deprive indigenous people to this day from the resources that they would need to gain any kind of wealth at the same moment of giving that wealth to European colonizers who have only built from that, right? So I, I do this exercise with my class, you know, because what's his name, John Tory again? <laughs> he he was asked about white privilege at one point when he was running for mayor, and he said, "No, no such thing exists," right? And so I asked my class, "Go look up, go look up John Tory's history. Go look up his family, and if you look up his family, go back three, four generations. Oh, his great grandfather, great great grandfather in Nova Scotia in the 1600s was given a parcel of land." as a loyalist who fought for the British to take over Canada from indigenous people. That's how they got their land, right? And it just goes down. And then he made himself a governor who had to be removed for him to become a governor. And then you go down his next, you know, with the next gen, he's got uncles who run universities. He's got uncles who, you know, have been governors in other places. So like the political power is handed down through the family line. You start with wealth, people in, in wealthy positions make themselves the governor of a place you look at the United States right now, they literally hand the power over to their children. Um, in the process, they accumulate. And how do you accumulate wealth? You accumulate wealth by one theft. But if it's not just theft, if you start to build industries and so on and so forth, you employ people and you pay them way less than you're making off of their labor, right? So systemic racism starts with making a shit ton of money off of black people who you bring from Africa and enslave, you build a whole economy based on their labor taken from land after having taken land from indigenous people. And then, you know, once slavery is abolished, you still create a legal system that prevents them from accumulating any wealth. So if you've watched some of these uh, movies that talk about certain kinds of histories, like the Tulsa massacre, um, the you should watch Watchmen. Watchmen is a great show for that. But anytime at any point in American history that black people have tried to accumulate wealth, literally white supremacists go and burn down their communities or they burn down their businesses, those kinds of things. So you have a society that's built on colonialism, um, slavery, and then years and years of legal racist exploitation. And then, you know, when that legal racist exploitation is banished, you still have covert practices you first of all, you've already stacked the deck so that your people have accumulated resources over generations that keep going to the next person, the next person, they're already behind. Uh, if they try to play catch up, which is very hard to do, as you know, like, if you live in Toronto, for example, and you want to buy a house, if your parents don't already own property, there's practically no like, if you already have people in your family that have that kind of money, you can't get enough money to get a down payment to get a property. But people who already have you know, the equity of a house, they can buy another one. So wealth, having wealth allows you to accumulate wealth, but 
wealth and power in the society are very much attached to race historically and presently. That was a bit of a long-winded explanation, but basically systemic racism is this idea that the deck has been stacked against people of color, particularly black and indigenous people from the inception of this country. And that stacking against the deck has favored predominantly white people who have maintained a structure of power. So it doesn't matter who comes into that structure of power. So even if you hire a police chief that's black here and there, or you have, you know, a mayor here and there that's black. Ultimately, the system is organized in such a way that still favors people who have money. And people who have money generally have been white people because they've maintained that system and up until like of overt racial discrimination. So if you're black, you can't vote. If you're black, you can't buy property, like those kinds of things um, for so long that we're always playing catch up. There's an argument that gets made that this is not a race issue, it's a class issue. What is your reaction to that statement? Well, my answer to that would be very simple, and that is you cannot, you literally cannot separate race and class. So you can read some books that are, you know, talk about what's called racial capitalism, but the idea is that we live in an economic structure that basically if you're Jeff Bezos, you're just going to get richer. The richer you are, the richer you'll get because you own the resources, you own capital, you own access you know, to water, to land, to other things that you can then produce, make products out of. The, when you own that, you're always going to make more money than the people you have working for you to build your, your condo building or whatever it is that they're doing for you, right? You're always, because you own things. Um, but ownership is completely tied up with, as we talked about, um, your race, because the folks who came to both the United States and Canada colonized these places and took ownership of over land and resources were white European colonizers, right? So indigenous people, for example, in Canada, you boot them off their land so that you can, you know, access their timber, access their water, etc. You put them in the worst parts of the country that have the least amount of resources, you try to starve them, you kill them, you do whatever. Um, so they're, they're, they were deliberately impoverished, like, John A. Macdonald had a policy of starving people, indigenous people, off, right off their land. They were self-sufficient before Europeans came. They weren't after. And then you prevent them from engaging in the political structures of the society. So they can't vote for who runs the society. They can't vote for who makes the laws in the society. And the laws favor white people. So white people are able to acquire property. White people are able to build businesses, which they're then able to hand down to their children which then they can hand down to their grandchildren. Meanwhile, you take indigenous people and you put them in, after you take put them in reservations where they can no longer be self-sufficient and essentially make them dependent on the state. In Canada, you put them in residential schools for 100 years, residential schools where they're deprived of their language, they're deprived of their families, they're tortured, you know, and what, like in the 80s is maybe when, you know, the I don't even know, the, the last residential school might have closed in the 80s or 90s, right? So you've put this population in the worst land possible, terrorized and policed them for generations, put them in residential schools to alienate and t- like basically break them apart from their family and their community, denied them the ability to vote, legally denied them the ability to pretty much own anything because they have no political power, but they're still resisting you this whole time. But by the time we hit the 90s, 2000s, whatever, they can't, they're not in a position of power in this society. They don't own shit. They don't run the police, you know, or they don't own, you know, the nearly the amounts of things that white folks who've 
for generations given themselves power own. So to me, like to make the argument and, and the same goes for black people, you enslave them, um, you know, after enslavement ends, you're still terrorizing their communities if they try, even if you're giving them the least of resources, the worst kind of land in Canada, places like um, Africville are taken away from black people and like from coast to coast in Canada, black people have also been deprived from having access to the same kinds of resources as white people. You, they can't build wealth, right? And when you can't build wealth in the society, you can't have power, but who is prevented from building wealth and preventing prevented from gaining power. It's it's, it's on a racialized hierarchy and not everybody who's not white is treated the same. So because indigenous people were the original people of the land to, to have Canada, you had to kill and, or get rid of them somehow. Right. And keep them down in a very particular way. Same with black people enslave them. And you still need them to be a cheap pool of labor. If you're going to keep up a, an exploitative social structure, other racialized people have been able to be higher in the in the hierarchy for a variety of different reasons, but ultimately a lot of it has to do with how they were brought into the country and how they've been allowed into the country. But ultimately what you have is a racialized hierarchy. So classes a hundred percent tied up with race. And in that black people and indigenous people have a very special place because of the initial ways in which the society was built, you know, Asian people and South Asian people is, have also been exploited but not in the same way, not with the same status, right? Let's switch to the NBA uh, a little bit. And the strike happened for the last couple of days. And one question that uh, that continually comes up is that it really shouldn't be on the players to start this movement. It should come from the owners. The fact that the players have to strike to bring this to attention is an indictment on NBA ownership. What What is your reaction to that stance that the, the owners are in the wrong here? Where does the onus lie there? Then my first thought is uh, <laughs> is uh, I would recommend some reading for your listeners. And the book I would recommend is a book called uh, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. It's written by a law professor who's long dead now, but his name is Derek Bell. And he founded something called Critical Race Theory, which is a theory that looks at the ways in which uh, racism has been enabled through the legal system, right? So how this long history that we've just described of racism, most of it has been, and to this day is actually, it's laws that perpetuate racism. And he said the only time, and his his theory at the end of the day was that because racism is foundational to American society, it's going to be a permanent part of American society. And he says, if you look at the history, the only time that people in power make choices to um, address racism is when they deem it more profitable to do so than to not do so. So when George Floyd was killed, I was like, okay, we've got the NFL giving Black Lives Matter statements. Odd. Like, <laughs> we've got who, we've got what. And at the end of the day, I didn't, and I still don't for a second buy that it has anything to them with anything to do with them caring about Black people, but it was literally everybody got the same PR memo. It's going to cost you more not to do this right now, right? So my understanding, we live in a political economy and people in positions of wealth who want to maintain their wealth generally make decisions uh, to do make decisions around any kind of messaging based on an assessment of how much money they'll lose or gain if they do or do not, right? So we already said with the players, 
their reason for taking a stance, their politics are very much personal. They're not taking a stance because it's going to make them money to do so. They know it's actually going to more likely make them lose money or like in Kaepernick's case, lose a full out career um, if they speak up against racism, right? So uh, most many haven't and many don't, um, but now they are because a lot of them, I guess, they don't care about the cost or, you know, they've seen other people pay the price for this in their families and are just like, you know, they have a responsibility to their community. Um, but the other thing I think about when I think about onus of owners versus players, I think of when COVID started, how um, the only, the first person to in the NBA to do something in support around COVID that I remember was Zion Williamson who offered basically to pay the salaries of all of the arena workers while the NBA was shut down. Right. So this is a 19 year old who takes it upon himself to pay the salaries, like salaries that in theory owners should be paying, right. Or who should be the ones to be thinking about this, but no, they didn't. He did. So why did he think about that? And if I, and it goes back to our conversation about race and class. And my understanding is, you know, Zion Williamson grew up, you know, probably poor, and working or a working class and he thought about workers he thought about people and how they will survive so he took it upon himself to do that and very much the same way all these NBA players are thinking about their families their communities their friends people they know uh now the owners to me their behavior makes 100 percent sense too because to me the owners are in a class with john tory maybe above john tory but most of them are rich white men and Many of them, as has been revealed in the media over the past little while, are straight up white supremacists and racists, like the Texas football team coach, Bob McNair, who said, uh, if you remember, that he can't let the inmates run the prison when black black football players were taking a knee and protesting racism, or the Clippers owner, Donald Sterling, who said, uh, what did he say about his girlfriend having Instagram pictures with black people, like point blank saying, I don't want public images of you with black people. But I, you know, I read up on that guy and he was also sued for racist housing discrimination. So the owner class of NBA sports teams or sports teams in general are white men who have generally been privileged by systemic racism. They have been able to make money in a sports structure that allows them to make billions of dollars without having necessarily any talent. Like, well, they like, you know, most many people who are wealthy inherited their wealth from their parents or grandparents who, you know, in this society, God knows how they got that. Somebody said, you know, nobody, nobody can earn a million dollars or a billion dollars. You, you, you're earning, you're not earning it. You're, you're gaining it from somebody else's work. Right. So the sports is no different from that. uh, There was an NBA movie about the NBA recently where they just out and out showed that. But this idea that collegiate sports, for example, you've got, coaches mostly white and you got to wonder why there's so many black athletes and so many white coaches but mostly white coaches getting paid five hundred thousand a million dollar salaries uh off of the profits made by players who are paid nothing okay a few of them get lucky enough to make it into professional sports and in professional sports even though they're getting paid millions of dollars out of like exceptional talent, they're literally one in a million to make it there. Though coaches are still making the co- sorry, the coaches, the sporting companies, the entertainment um, industries, 
the owners are making billions of dollars out of that athlete's labor. These people aren't doing, the owner isn't, you know, didn't spend, you know, 20 years developing that talent level to make those billions of dollars off of these men's talent, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, there's a lot about sports, you know, that people, academics have written about this. The sports is very much an exploitative labor structure in which often black men are treated like property, literally traded, bought, sold. Is your view that NBA players are being exploited? Mm, yes and no. I mean, exploited. So I would so I've worked at a university as a professor and I'd say professors are also exploited. I'd say in the society, but there of the of of but ex, labor exploitation is a tricky thing um some professors are exploited sorry some aren't <laughs> but labor exploitation is basically when somebody makes more money off of the work that you do than you do isn't that how capitalism kind of works like you hire employees and the owner makes more profit than the employee you hire is capitalism at odds with social justice capitalism is exploitative by nature. What's your way forward there? Because I'm trying to figure out what is the next step we do to actually fix that? Because if we are operating under a capitalistic structure and you said capitalism is opposed to social justice, then aren't any action we're taking not really helping because the overall structure is one that prohibits all the things that you just mentioned? Well, I mean, sure. Ideally, we would find a way to reorganize our society in non-exploitative ways. Like that's, that's, the ideal end goal. But I mean, we've been in this exploitation thing for a very, 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 very long time. And it preceded capitalism for that matter. Capitalism is just like a hyper intensified form of exploitation because people can own things like literally at a global level. Right. Um, And technology enables different kinds of exploitation that didn't used to exist. But anyway, the point for me is not that the point for me is for people. So instead of, saying, go forward, go fix this. It's even just trying to get people to understand what position they themselves are in, right? So a lot of times people will look at athletes and resent them. Why are they protesting? Look at black people. Why are they protesting? Teachers, why are they striking? You know, there's a lot of, why is pe- why are people complaining, right? Because I have it worse than, like, you don't have it that bad. You know, you have a million dollars or, oh, you at least have a job. I don't have a job during COVID, but that's, but that's what an exploitative system does. It sets people up to blame themselves and each other instead of to recognize, wait, what position am I, am I in? And how does it relate to the position that this other person is in, right? And, do I ha- and should, should I want things to be any different than they are, right? So with, with sports, sports could be set up really differently, um, to protect players, you know, from, so to even, to make, to even make it into a structure where not some people win a big lottery of you get to be a $35 million player while somebody who's just a little less talented than you gets a million. And while somebody who's just a little less talented than that person gets nothing, right? Like that's the setup right now. Um, but you could you could actually redistribute the amount of money generated in sports so that everybody got a more equitable share if players organize themselves differently and took collective ownership, let's say it's something like professional sports. But anyway, but that goes with the rest of society as well. It's a lot of people who don't have sympathy for people who are being brutalized by the society 
is because they've bought into, well, for lack of better words, the propaganda that, you know, each of us could make it in the society. Every one of us could become successful if we work hard enough. And the reality is it's not true. Like there's a gazillion people. And I think Steven Jackson said it himself. He was like, George Floyd was an extremely talented athlete, but not everybody makes it right. And if you don't make it, then you're easily on this side of the fence where you get shot by a policeman who just feels like your community is something, you know, to be harassed and terrorized or put in their place. Right. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm rambling. At this well, what I'm getting out of this is the American dream is dead. Well, the American dream was a lie. <laughs> That's better put. Is there something we can learn from uh, the civil rights movement or, or previous movements towards racial justice and social equality that we make sure we carry forward? And, and are, are there mistakes that we have made in history that we want to avoid as we try to leverage the momentum we have and, and see it through? For me, the first thing that comes up when you say that is, you know, who's we? <laughs> and, you know, and in that, what I'm trying to say is there's obviously with your audience, there's people who are on very different ends of this issue, right? So there are people, you know, for whom political and social justice isn't something that they think about. And, you know, they're just sort of aware of it because it's in the news right now and or because their favorite NBA players are striking. Um, There are people who think we live in a totally fair and just and equitable like a great society where there you know racism was a thing of the past and you know where they they think everybody can make it if they work hard enough there are people who are very clear and will use language like we live in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and until white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy are taken apart you know um we're forever gonna have people being victimized by discrimination Um, So it's hard to give like a broad strokes answer. But one thing I would say in terms of what I understand, not just about social justice movements, but about um, history and what to learn from it is the thing that always comes back to me when I teach students and anybody else about racism is one of the things that perpetuates violence in our society and racist violence, for example, is denial. So and it's, it's not accidental, the denial, right? So what I teach students in my second year undergrad social work classes about colonialism, and I ask them, you know, what have you learned about the history of colonialism or indigenous people in Canada? They usually say, we didn't really learn much, right? Like, this is the first we're hearing that Canada was colonial, and that, you know, indigenous people were violently killed and, um, expulsed right and that's not an accident so when i show them like there's still to this day a curriculum for grade three when it describes um colonialism basically talks about settlers coming and then people indigenous people moving out you know like they voluntarily moved out (laughs) you know in a cooperative kind of kind of situation right um they there's you know house on the prairie and frontier this and huckleberry Front, like all the adventure stories and some academics talk about it this but a lot of the family english literature foundational english literature it's all a celebration columbus day blah 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 it's a celebration of really violent people 
Um, so people are taught to be in denial, like taught to be in denial about history, taught to be in denial about what's happening right now. If black people are protesting, they have no idea why, because they don't understand that black communities are violently policed and have been so for the entire time that they've been on this continent. So the first thing that I would suggest as a lesson is to start to recognize the ways in which we've all been taught to not only deny what's happening now, like so to live in denial right now, but to live in denial over what's happened in history. So when you have something like Nazi Germany, or for me, I come from Rwanda, which is a country in Central Africa where there was a genocide. Most people who end up in really extreme violence like genocide are surprised when it happens. They don't even realize that the society has built up to a place where they just started exterminating people. But the reality is if you actually look at their histories, you know, the newspapers of the day and those kinds of things did talk about, oh, you know, we're going to target this. This group is being put in, in prison for our safety or this is happening to these people for our safety. So the information was there, but people just denied that it was happening. So I guess one thing I didn't say to you is a lot of the research that I've done has been about genocide. And, you know, one of the things about genocide is you attack a group of people, but then you construct that group of people as a threat so that people stay not only in denial about the harm that's being done to a group of people, um, but lie to themselves about, about why that's happening. So my biggest sort of so, and to me, the society we're living in right now, and particularly what's going on in the States is it's, it's, <laughs> it's not good. It's not business as usual. It's not normal. Like kids being put in cages and uh, people being executed by the police in broad daylight and protesters being executed by, you know, like white supremacist types with guns. Like none of that is normal. And and if the current political party stays in power, and even with the other political party, America is really very much going into, I would say, a genocidal place. So it's important that people aren't in denial about the severity of the political moment we're in, because that's what happened in the past. People were in denial about the severity of the political moment that they're in. And I think people in North America, I think people who are immigrants from other places are a little less confused because... They've been in countries where there's dictatorships and they've been in countries where there's been genocide and war. So they know this can not only happen in my lifetime, it has happened in my lifetime. A lot of people here are insulated from that. So they don't recognize things that are happening right in front of them. So I'd say don't be denial about what is happening right now. Um, and, and once you're not in denial, it'll become very clear that you should do something <laughs> And in terms of what you can actually do, I'm a big proponent. Not everybody has the same role to play. So the NBA players have their role. You know, if you're a teacher in school, your role can be as simple as teaching like history, honestly. Um, if you are somebody who works as a social worker, it can mean, you know, protecting people like migrants and undocumented people who are, who are, you know, treated horribly by the, by the government um, if you are just a regular person who like, not just regular, we're all regular people, but if you're somebody who really, really don't know about these things, I would just say, try to learn from anything that you have access to, whoever you have access to. 
and it'll become clear for you what you can do at the level of your own community. You don't need to change the whole society. You can change your workplace. You can change your neighborhood. Um, the people who are filming the police shootings, they're doing something. The people who are showing up for the protests, you know, with their like walls of moms and stuff like that, they're doing something. The people who are feeding the protesters, the people who are writing letters to their political representatives, you know, for some people voting is the thing that they can do. I, I don't know, you know, the extent to which that accomplishes stuff, but there's a lot that you can do if you just start in your own area with your own people. Uh, and your words really resonated there because I'm from Kashmir and, uh, and you know, your, 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 your idea of subjugating a people and then portraying the same people as a threat uh, is, is really uh, re- relevant to me at least. So, so thank you for that. Let's switch back to the NBA a little. The, the NBA is obviously looking uh, for a way forward uh, in, in this situation. And, and you mentioned it earlier that, you know, they will do where they can make profit. Like they, they will only act if there's a profitable end to it. Uh, they may not say that publicly, but I think uh, whatever you're incentivized to do and if it's profitable, you will do it. And if it's not, you won't. If you're hired by the NBA as a consultant on how to proceed next and how to bring change to the NBA so it is more equitable, it is more just, how would you advise Adam Silver? I mean, I don't have that kind of faith in David Silver or the NBA in terms of, um, I, I think they their goodwill is to to their players above all else in the sense that they want, like it, it would not do for the NBA to fall apart. And so to some degree or another, you have to, um, it would not do for the owners of the NBA or the commissioners. So they have to kind of calm, like make their players feel better. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Right. So a consultant would probably be invited in to advise the NBA on how can you essentially manage your players so that, they're not dissatisfied. And so that'll probably look like what they're probably going to do. Cause you know, Obama came in there and advised the players to end the strike and you know, they're probably going to, well, they've already done the, we're going to let you guys wear this. Sh- so, okay. If we go back to the question about historically, what institutions do when there's a big upsurge of political discontent, and there has been throughout Canadian and American history is they try to contain and control it. Right. So, you what do you call it they appropriate it so you allow people to have protest zones and spaces and you legalize protest and um if you're somebody like trudeau you promise that you know indigenous people are your first priority and you promise to give you know x amount of money a few million dollars to black communities if you're the nba you say okay we're gonna you know build i don't know things in underprivileged communities to give them access to basketball players, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And that's all, you know, it's all well and good and fine um, in terms of making people feel better that they're doing something. But I don't, I actually think it would go against the NBA's interest to fundamentally to do major things like, and major things would be like, well, get rid of the racist president, first of all. Right. Um, and they're kind of doing that with the, uh, we're going to open voting booths in in arenas, but the reality of the American system is irrespective of the political party. It's like white supremacy open or covert. Like it's, it's racism, heavy racism light. So um, I don't really think the NBA is going to be an institution of change because the NBA benefits too much from racist capitalism. However, 
I would say, and I find it very curious that they have not with all of these players having doing all the striking, have you, have you seen anybody get a long form interview about why they're doing that? No, because there is no media availability. I mean, they get about 10 minutes after a game or a pregame, and that's when you're supposed to talk about the game. And that's when Fred Van Vliet and, and Norman Powell took those 10 minutes to talk about, you know, non-NBA stuff. And that's what kind of sparked this whole thing. So so you, you, the answer to your question is no, I, I don't think there are any long form. Like, certainly there hasn't been a conversation like you and I are having for an hour on, on what's going on. So to me, that's very telling, Right. Um, with the football players, you remember Marshawn, Marshawn Lynch, was it? Like he refused to answer questions in a certain context because, and when I say NBA players are exploited, part of their labor structure is such that they are not allowed to speak freely about what they think as part of their like contractual obligations or arrangements, right? They're not, and that is, and that's very, very deliberate because they would have a lot of influence, right? So I'm like, you know, if, if, if the NBA was genuinely sincere, the only action I would ask them to take is remove the muzzle from the players. Let them speak. Let them tell you why they're protesting. Let them tell us why they're protesting. We want to know. What does Black Lives Matter mean to Fred Van Fleet? What does it mean to Pascal Siakam? What does it mean to Kawhi Leonard? Like, let them speak without penalty. Maybe instead of a halftime show, we should have like half an hour for an NBA player talking about that. Just give them a panel, put LeBron James and... Without negative consequence to his career, let him speak freely about what he thinks. That's all I would ask the NBA to do. I know for a fact the NBA will never do that. It would be it would be very destabilizing to actually give them that kind of platform. Destabilizing to the social structure, which would then be just destabilizing to the NBA structure. And the NBA wants to maintain certain kinds of power structures because the owners want, like the guy said, the, the racist Texan coach. You can't have, you know, he wants to run the show. So, MJ, thank you so much for talking to us and uh, enlightening us on some of these topics. Before we go, do you have any reading recommendations uh, for our audience where they can perhaps learn more about how to educate themselves or how to learn more about systemic racism and and, uh, and basically be more prepared for what's ahead? For Canadian audience, I guess this is a Canadian audience. So the book Policing Black Lives by Robin Maynard really breaks down the history of racist policing, particularly anti-black policing in Canada. I think Black Lives Matter Toronto just put out a book and edited a collection called Until We Are Free. And I would advise everybody to read anything and everything written by Pamela Palmotter, who's an Indigenous lawyer and academic who has written essentially about Canadian, not just colonial history, but how Canada is currently still colonial so those would be my top three off the top of my head thank you so much for your time and we'd love to have you back next time to talk more about this uh about this issue okay i appreciate it thank you for having me 